You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Amen. I love the fact that together we sing the gospel. We don't just preach the gospel. Uh, We want to sing the gospel. Most importantly, we want to live out the gospel. I think it's important for us to do that together. The church gathered is so important. And to see you here today on a summer Sunday, um, when I know that you could be somewhere else, uh, but you have chosen to be here. Thank you. Uh, It's good to see you. If you're a guest, uh, my name is uh, Mike Lovely. I have the privilege of being the lead pastor here. And um, uh, we often uh, now introduce ourselves, uh, not because... (laughs) Uh, we necessarily need to have our names known, but there are so many new faces week in and week out uh, that we want you to know and understand. We desire to connect with you uh, and to get to know you, and so I thank you so much for being here. I do want to echo what Jay said in praising God for uh, the work that he has done uh, through both of uh, our kids' camps and our students' camps. Uh, I counseled with uh, two sisters this past week. Their mom brought them in. Uh, They made decisions at camp and uh, have a desire to follow the Lord in baptism. And so uh, those decisions are being uh, made and followed uh, followed up on, and uh, it's just exciting uh, to see that. Um, Let me uh, just real quickly encourage you, if you have not yet downloaded uh, our church app, I want to encourage you to do that, and uh, for a number of different reasons. It's, it's just a great, great, very practical tool. Uh, it stays up to date, like almost daily, uh, it's being updated with things. And one of the things that is very important in that app uh, is service opportunities. Uh, and so recently, we've had a service opportunity on there to help one of our young moms, single mom, uh, move. And so that had to get rescheduled and everything, but that will still be a ministry opportunity that some of you can be a part of. Uh, meal trains occasionally for someone maybe who's had surgery or something like that. And it's important that you do that through the meal train and through the app because if you've ever been in that situation, you've had people graciously bringing food to you. While chicken spaghetti is amazing, it's not necessarily amazing four days in a row, Right? Uh, and so if you will look on the meal train, it, uh, there is a place for you to put on there what it is that you have brought, or you can see what has been brought. Uh, and so there's not a duplication and uh, you know, people bringing the same thing over and over again. And so uh, it is really a great way to connect uh, with our church family. And there are sermon notes in there, among other things, a church calendar and all of that. So Use that resource. I would really encourage you to do that. Let me also remind you, if you uh, have not yet picked up a baby bottle to fill uh, for uh, the True Options Pregnancy Center in Sherman, let me encourage you to do that today because that really ends next Sunday on Father's Day when you bring those back in filled with your coins and your dollar bills and your checks and all that kind of stuff. So uh, there's some information about True Options on the table over here and in the foyer on your way out. Uh, other opportunities for you to volunteer and to be a part of what uh, they are doing there, even outside of the Baby Bottle campaign. So take advantage of that as well. Well, last week we started our summer sermon series in the book of Psalms. We've paused our study of the Gospel of John. We uh, went through chapter 6 there, and Lord willing, in the fall we'll return to John's Gospel uh, with chapter 7. But uh, we've paused now to do a summer sermon series in the Psalms. And the Psalms express a wide variety of emotions. It's one of the things that we talked about in the introductory message last week. And the Psalms are written in a variety of contexts. 
Uh, and scholars have tended to classify psalms based upon their genre or their types. And so we see psalms of praise and psalms of lament, for example. And so what can be tricky is, like a lot of things, uh, scholars don't necessarily agree on the list of types and, and, and the genres. And it can, it can be easy to multiply categories to account for the uniqueness of each of the psalms. And what can happen then is we end up with 150 different categories. Uh, because they are certainly not all the same. Many of the psalms have more than one element. Uh, for example, Psalm 34 uh, is a thanksgiving psalm, and it also has a wisdom section. Uh, the psalm that we looked at last week, if you were here, Psalm chapter 5, uh, contains praise and lament, and it also has an imprecatory element to it. Um, a prayer for God's judgment to fall on David's enemies. And, uh, and so you see there, and so nothing prevents any psalm uh, from performing more than one function. And so it's in that light that the, the classification can certainly uh, be helpful in our understanding of the different purposes of the psalms and guide our interpretation in light of those, those purposes. I, I, I've really found myself um, appreciating more and more the term function over form. Function over form. And so the basic functions uh, that you find in the Psalms, and this is not an inclusive list by any means, uh, include the following. We've talked about some of these already. There are Psalms of lament, and we're going to see even some of that today. There are hymns of praise and hymns of thanksgiving and hymns celebrating God's law. Um, Psalm 119 is devoted almost in its entirety to the word of God. Uh, to the principles and the precepts and the truth of the Word of God. There are wisdom psalms. There are songs of confidence. There are royal psalms. There are historical psalms. There are prophetic uh, hymns or songs. And, and so it's my hope that in our summer series, uh, you will get a, a gain a greater understanding and appreciation for the wide variety of functions found in the book of Psalms. I don't know about you, but I find myself in a lot of ways connecting with the Psalms. Now, maybe you're not one of those kind of people. In fact, someone shared with me last week how uh, they now will see the Psalms in a completely different way than maybe they have before. Uh, if, you're not, if you're someone who doesn't necessarily appreciate poetry, for example, maybe you found yourself kind of avoiding the Psalms or you don't gravitate to them quite like some, someone else might. Uh, but, but one of the things that I find uh, in the Psalms is that uh, I can identify uh, with the good, the bad, and the ugly. Because I don't know about you, but my life's not all good all the time. <laughs> I mean, I'd love for it to be, but there are days that are challenging and difficult and seasons that are dark and, um, uh, you know, discouraging and, and, and for, for a variety of reasons. And so I find the, just the, the raw nature of, of, of what the psalmists are writing here uh, to be an encouragement in any ways. And so Psalm 6 that we're going to look at this morning is actually an individual lament of David. It's especially suited to one whose hard circumstances have led them to see their sin and repent. And so for this reason, Psalm 6 is often included in what's called the penitential psalms. Uh, if, if, you're, if you have at least a marginal uh, understanding of the psalms, you're probably familiar with Psalm 51. It falls into this category. It's David's prayer to God after he's morally failed with Bathsheba. It's there that he cries out, God, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. 
Um, Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. That's a penitential psalm. And so that's the case here with chapter 6. Psalm 32 is one of those. Psalm 38, Psalm 130, Psalm 143. And so this psalm encourages us to turn to God in trust, even when our troubles are God's discipline. Because it sings of his steadfast love, which never fails. We just sang about it, right? Your love never fails. It never gives up on me. So while the, the, the superscriptions, and we talked about this a little bit last week, that are added to the Psalms, they were added later. The, the little headings that you see, uh, the little descriptors that you see ahead of each, uh, many of the Psalms, uh, they were added later. They're not inspired in the same way as the text itself, although they do contain helpful information. And so the, the superscription of Psalm 6 here attributes the Psalm to David, and so we see that. It is said to be according to the Sheminith. Now, what in the world is that? Okay, well, the Sheminith is a term that literally means an eighth, uh, most likely reflecting either an eight-stringed instrument or a particular instrumental tuning, or some would say even an octave, a particular musical octave. Uh, and they would say that the, the Sheminith here is actually the lowest octave that the male voice can sing. So let's hear it for all the basses in the room, right? All right, behold, he, you know, that... I mean, that's, that's where you reside. And when you were in choir, you know, it was like, man, this part's too high for me. I can't sing that. Uh, and so uh, that, that's the idea. And you'll see words like that. You even see one uh, uh, before uh, chapter 7. Um, and so uh, each of the parts of this psalm, though, provides spiritual insight on how we should respond when it seems that God is silent. You ever been to that place in your life where you're praying felt like God was silent, that, that, that he was difficult to find, or he was long in responding to your pain. That's Psalm 6. So we're going to do like we did last week. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and if you have a copy of the ESV, I would encourage you to read from your uh, copy there. If not, I'm going to encourage you to read from the screen. And we're going to together, in unison, read aloud... Psalm 6, okay? This is a chance for you to participate. I know you just got comfortable and nestled into your seat and all that, but uh, we're going to read this together as a part of corporate worship. Psalm 6, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Thank you, and you may be seated. Sometimes we know that we're the problem. 
Sometimes when we're suffering, the tendency of the sinful human heart is to blame others or to curse our circumstances or to act like the innocent victim. Do whatever else before we're finally ready to admit, okay, I know it's my fault. It's me. I'm the problem. Now, I know that the eyes of some of you teenage girls just lit up because that sounds like the lyrics to a Taylor Swift song, right? That was not intentional, okay? Trust me. I am not that cool or connected uh, to current culture. I will say that I drove the girls' van last year on the Wyoming missions trip, and I heard enough Taylor Swift to last me for the rest of my life, okay? Um, And so maybe subliminally those words entered my brain. I don't know. But sometimes we know that, that we're at fault. It's me. There's an old spiritual that says, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And the reason that I'm in this mess, the reason that I'm not experiencing what I'm experiencing right now is because of my own sinful stupidity. It's because of my pride, my arrogance, my sinful inclinations. It's me. Now, in Psalms 3 through 7, remember, David is being pursued by enemies. We know the situations with with reasonable uh, assurance in Psalm 3 and 7, but we don't know it for the rest of these psalms. And so some have speculated that they were all written during the time when David was uh, was fleeing from Absalom, Uh, that the title from Psalm 3 uh, should be understood as kind of giving us a setting for also Psalms 4 through 6. Now, we did see last week that these four psalms, three through six, they fit together following that morning-evening pattern, right? In the morning, in the evening, in the morning, in the evening. However, we don't know uh, with certainty that they were all written at the same time under exactly the same circumstances. In fact, the more I've studied this over the past couple of weeks, the more I'm inclined to believe that they weren't necessarily all written at the same time because David's attitude toward his circumstances and toward his enemies varies from psalm to psalm. So in Psalm 4, which we haven't looked at it together here on a Sunday morning, but in, in Psalm 4, David is preaching the gospel to his enemies, essentially. In Psalm 5, he wants to see them fall into their own trap and be removed. And so in in both of those psalms, he seems to be focused uh, on his own innocence. I'm innocent in this. I'm being pursued. I'm being pursued unjustly. These people are coming against me unjustly. In Psalm 4, he is proclaiming it to his enemies, while in Psalm 5, he is declaring it to God while he calls on the Lord for justice. But you'll notice the tone of Psalm 6 is very different. Here in Psalm 6, David is crying out to God because he knows he has sinned and his troubles are his fault. It seems that the most likely setting for Psalm 6 is when David is fleeing from Absalom. And the reason for that is it was was the time when David realized his own responsibility for what has happened. That's a key difference between the two times when David was fleeing for his life from violent enemies. When King Saul was pursuing him earlier in his life, David was innocent. He had done nothing to deserve the persecution of Saul. However, when Absalom, his son, rebels against David, it is partly David's fault due to his poor managing of his household and the poor parenting of his children. 
So while it was wrong for Absalom to, to lead a rebellion, a revolt against David, and, and so for the, uh, the many officials in Jerusalem to support Absalom, so David could cry out for justice against his enemies. I, th- I think, But at the end of the day, when he laid his head down to go to sleep, the overwhelming sense of guilt and shame over his failures as a father were too much for him. He knew he was partly reaping what he had sown, that his son's rebellion was due at least in part to his neglect and his failure to act decisively as both father and king in his own household. So I want you to notice from verses 1 through 3, David's desire. His desire is for grace and mercy. For grace and mercy. Whatever the situation, David is facing the reality that it is not just enemies who are against him. Enemies from without. But the hand of God is also against him because of his sin. This this thought deeply distresses David. Listen carefully to the words of verses 1 through 3 again. O Lord, and listen to the, the language that he chooses here. Rebuke me not in your anger, rebuke anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? So in the Hebrew, uh, the original language of the Old Testament, in verse number 1, anger and wrath are actually placed in the first position. In the Hebrew language, I don't pretend to be a Hebrew scholar, but I I do remember enough from my seminary days to know that word order is very, very important in interpreting uh, the Hebrew language. And so they're placed first for emphasis' sake. And so it's literally, in your anger, O Lord, rebuke me not, nor in your wrath discipline me. And maybe you're someone who has kind of felt like, well, well God's wrath and even a, a, a anger being associated with God, that's all from the Old Testament, right? Like you're thinking, you know, hellfire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah and all those kinds of things. I like to think of that, that just kind of being God of the Old Testament. But I'm more into the God of the New Testament. Right? I like grace and mercy and love and that kind of thing. But listen, that, that, that's not the case. God is unchanging. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. We call that his immutability. And I want you to listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Anybody got that section of scripture on a poster hanging on your wall at home? <laughs> if you do, maybe it's because you want to point your kids to it regularly, right? Like, check this out, right? 
So this is what has David in such deep distress at this point. The idea that God would not just discipline him as a loving heavenly father, but that he might justly discipline David in his wrath. Such a discipline could, could rightly involve David being even permanently removed from his throne, possibly even from life in this world. So it's vital for us to see that God would be perfectly just to do this to David. David deserves it. That's what weighs heavily on his heart and on his mind. And so he pleads with God for gracious healing. Let's pause for a moment because healing, we typically associate with, uh, with physical healing, right? Healing here probably uh, is, is being used more as a metaphor for forgiveness, David is so distressed that he says, my bones are troubled. My soul is greatly troubled. There are two different ways for David to refer to his innermost self. Now, I don't think it's completely out of line. It's not some kind of heretical interpretation to say that perhaps David was suffering some physical uh, ailment of some sort related to his sin. That can be the case sometimes. I do think we have to use great caution in making an assumption that any and all sickness that we experience is the direct judgment of God. Okay, And as someone who uh, lives with a chronic disease, I've been a diabetic for almost 28 years now, uh, and there have been times and seasons when I've prayed, Lord, if, if this is as a result of something that I've done, some sin that I've continued to coddle in my life and all those things, God, I, I seek your forgiveness. I, I seek your healing. I seek hope. All those things. And I've even had some people through the years try to explain to me that any and all sickness we have is a direct judgment of God. Uh, we know that's not true because in Scripture, remember there was some religious leaders in Jesus' earthly ministry, who came and said, who has sinned that this man was born blind? And Jesus said, they said, his parents, or he or his parents? And his response was, neither. But that God may be glorified in this. I know it's hard for us to think of God being glorified in some kind of a physical ailment. And, And there are some of you in the room that I know daily pain, physical pain, is a daily part of your life. It's a huge struggle sometimes for you to just get out of bed. And so there is a theological sense, please understand what I'm saying here this morning, in which we could say, yes, that is all a part of the judgment of God. In the sense that, 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 that part of the curse of living in a broken, sinful world is that we now have bodies that we have disease and we have uh, suffering and we have pain and all of those sorts of things. But to see this as like, Every illness we experience, every bout with high blood pressure, every bout with gout or diverticulitis, that is a direct judgment of God in your life. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been so sick a couple of times in my life when I I was praying whatever I could to try to get some relief. Lord, if this is because of sin in my life, please, God, forgive me. Remove that from me. Lord, please. You know, you just feel like you'd be so sick that you feel like you're going to die, right? And, and certainly there's evidence in Scripture that God can take someone out. But I think in this particular case, we need to see this. What is David is, 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 is so distressed. Now, I will tell you this. In Psalm 35, David uses this, a similar combination to speak of deep joy and relief. 
He says there, then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. So I think really what he's getting at uh, is that this is, a, this is a distress that is deep, deep inside. This is not just some you know, little minor inconvenience. Like he is in distress. He uses the word languishing. I am languishing. So David is deeply distressed. He's so distressed, in fact, that at the end of verse number three, it seems that he can't even find his, uh, finish his thought. He says there, but you, O Lord, and it's hard to appreciate this when you just read it in the English text here, but, but it's believed that there's a rather long pause there. And then he just says, how long? How long? Who knows what he was going to say? But you, O Lord, are good. But you, O Lord, are my helper. Whatever it is, it seems to go unsaid as David breaks the pattern of his prayer, leaves the line incomplete, and simply says in exasperation, How long? How long is an exasperated cry? But I would suggest to you today that it's an exasperated cry of faith. The cry, How long, occurs 16 times in the Psalms and is the deep, an anguished plea of God's people. Notice David doesn't say, why me? Why me? There's a world of difference between crying, why me? And crying, how long? Why me is more self-centered and entitled. David could easily have said, why not me? Why me says, I don't deserve this. How long, says you, O Lord, are right and just, but please remember that I am dust and cannot bear your indignation forever. Injustice, remember mercy. Why me calls into question the very justice of God, but how long simply pleads for the mercy of God. Why me questions God's love on many levels, but how long simply pleads for relief. So let us learn in our times of anguish to plead how long. It's a cry for mercy. Then I want you to notice verses 4 through 7. And I want you to notice the despair. The depths of despair to which David finds himself. And what we see here is a fear of death and sleepless weeping. Just because David is making a faithful plea doesn't mean his distress is any less. And so look at verses 4 through 7 with me again. It says, Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. So after David catches his breath at the end of verse number 3, he continues to cry out to God, pleading for God to turn to him in favor, deliver him, and save him. So he fears that God is against him, and so he pleads for God to turn toward him. That is to look upon him with favor is the idea here. He knows his only hope for deliverance and salvation is from the Lord. So he asks God to deliver and to save. 
But at the same time, he knows he's guilty. What could be his basis for asking God to turn toward him and deliver him? Look at verse 4. Save me, he says, for the sake of your steadfast love. Remember the Hebrew word we talked about last week? Hesed. That's what he is saying. Remember me based upon the nature of your very character. Not because I deserve to be delivered, not because I've rehabbed myself to the point that I should now be acceptable to you, based upon your covenant faithful love has said. Again, David has no other hope for salvation and deliverance but in the Lord. Has no basis on which to approach God for salvation and deliverance that he needs but in God's own has said. His covenant faithful love. His undeserved and yet firmly committed loving kindness. God's has said is what sent Jesus to the cross for us. And Jesus' death on the cross is what secured God's has said for his people forever. And then David then appeals to God on the basis of the fact that if he's dead, he won't be able to praise God anymore. If, if it's your plan, Lord, to take me out right here, understand this. Now, he's not saying that there is no life after death. He's appealing to God on the basis that if he's allowed to live and continue to reign as king, then he can continue to lead God's people in processions of praise to God and bring greater glory to God here in earth than if he were gone from this life to the afterlife. In other words, David is at least to some degree concerned for the honor of God's name in the world, which shows that his heart is in the right place with God. And so David then concludes his appeal to God for deliverance by emphasizing his deep distress once again. And it's raw. Remember, David concludes Psalm 4 by praying, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. But here in Psalm 6... In the depths of his distress, David is not able to lie down and sleep. He is only able to lie down and weep. I think it was Charles Haddon Spurgeon that says, A clear conscience makes for a soft pillow. So an unclear conscience then would make for a hard pillow can make it really difficult for someone to sleep. Look at the way he describes this. David finds himself weeping. Every night he says, I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. David's language is powerful. He says he makes his bed swim or float with his tears. Now, while that's obviously not literally the case, it was a powerful way of describing his anguish. When we're in deep distress and our hearts are troubled with anxiety and guilt and shame, we may be able to keep ourselves busy enough during the day, just kind of going through the motions of life, staying occupied, not thinking about uh, some of the difficulties that we're experiencing. But when you lie down at night, it's a different story. And you can become captive to your thoughts of turmoil. And those thoughts come on strong. David's crying so much that he can't sleep or see. 
And yet, even in his deep distress, he's crying to the Lord. His tears are directed toward God. In Psalm 56, 8, David says this, You have kept count of my tossings. You ever found yourself tossing and turning during the night? I know some of you, maybe you suffer from chronic insomnia. You've tried every sleep aid that you possibly could. You've tried it, but you just do not get a good night's sleep. Sometimes there are physical reasons for that. Maybe you suffer from restless leg syndrome or any number of things. Sometimes we can't sleep because it is not well with our soul. You ever been there? That's where David is. That's where David is. Now I want you to notice number three, his declaration, verses 8 through 10. As deep as David's distress is in verses 6 and, se- or verses six and 7, his attitude and his outlook, you'll notice, it, it turns very suddenly in verses 8 through 10. It's, it, in fact, it's such a dramatic turn that some scholars have suggested that verses 8 through 10 actually didn't originally belong to this psalm, that they were attached at the end of David's lament to give it a more hopeful conclusion. I, I don't think that's true. And the reason I don't think that's true is because if you look at David in this dramatic turn of perspective, he tells us why that is the case himself. In fact, he says it twice, so we don't miss it. He says, depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. Now remember the opening plea from both chapters 4 and chapter 5. If you look there, he he, he says, Be gracious to me and hear my prayer in chapter 4. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, we looked at last week. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. And so just as Psalms 4 and 5 open with a plea for God to hear, Psalm 6, check this out, ends with a joyful and victorious conclusion. Why? Because God has heard. God has heard. Because David knows God has heard his plea, accepted his prayer. He is able to respond with bold confidence, depart from me, all you workers of evil. In the first year of our married life, uh, 1989, 1990, somewhere back there, uh, we lived on a dairy farm in northwestern Pennsylvania. And uh, one day, I uh, had a responsibility to uh, do some work on one of the silos, actually the the auger, the unloader it was called, at the top of the silo. Some, Some silos are emptied from down below, this one was emptied from up top. And so there would be this... Uh, this ring and some machinery and auger that would sit down on top of the silage and it would, it would pull it up and it would shoot it out and down. Okay, And so I had to climb up into the silo, kind of back down into the level of the silage because some doors had not been taken out. And I started doing my work in there. But as I was climbing back out of the silo, I slipped and fell back down onto that piece of equipment. I'm not certain it knocked me out, but I'm going to tell you this. It knocked the fooey out of me. Okay, I mean, I, I lay there for a minute. It definitely knocked the breath out of me. I know that. And then as I was kind of coming to and my, my thinking was clearing up, you know what 
You know what the first thought came to my mind was? In just a little while, the guy that does evening chores and feeds all these cows is going to come in here and he's going to turn this thing on. Now you've got to realize, I'm 25 or 30 feet up in the air inside a silo. This piece of equipment's pretty loud, so once he flips it on, he's not hearing Mike crying out. He's not. And all I'm thinking is, Lord, this is not how I saw it ending. Mike getting fed to the cows, okay? This, this is not how I want this to end. So I was like, I got to do whatever I can to get out of this thing. I mean, but it was, I was at a place of like desperation. It was all I could do to get back out of the silo and, and get, get across the street to our house. Sometimes it can seem that way. We're in such a place of desperation. It's like, can anybody hear me? Am I, am I being heard? Lord, are you even listening as I pray and as I cry out to you in this place of anguish? And so that's why David says here that he had heard. David knows that God has heard his plea, accepted his prayer. And so that's why he's able to respond in such confidence. So the language from uh, th this same language uh, from Jesus tells us that David's words, remember it was in Matthew chapter 7 where Jesus essentially says essentially the same thing. When he judges those who claim to be his own but are not. It's one of the most sobering passages in all of scripture. It says, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you depart from me workers of lawlessness. That was said to religious people. Who said, have we not done things in your name? Have we not cast out demons? Have we not? I'm not talking about, it's like church folk. Who thought they were okay with God based upon their religious activity. And so the language from Jesus tells us that David's words in Psalm 6-8 are spoken as the anointed king and judge of Israel. This is actually a royal judicial pronouncement. It's not just a personal vindictive statement. David is able to conclude Psalm 6 with another royal declaration. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. So again, this leaves us to say, how in the world does this apply to us? Well, we all have an enemy, right? Or enemies, they surround us, attack us, it can seem. What do we need? We need God to hear our plea for deliverance and salvation. The cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ is God's definitive answer that he has heard the plea of his people and has defeated our enemies. And while our enemy, the devil, Satan, is a very real enemy, he is a defeated foe. He's a defeated foe. And I want you to listen to Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And this is one you can hang on your wall. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all, uh, us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So here's the thing, whether it's our fault or not, 
Whether you feel that you're in a season of suffering as it relates to your own sinfulness or some stupid sinful decision that you've made, or some sinful activity that you found yourself engaging in, our hope is the same. Our hope's the same. Now, we know that life brings us many reasons to weep in deep distress, but, but, but no reasons for us to utterly despair. The causes of our distress may vary greatly. We may be struggling because we, like David, have sinned. And when that's the case, the Bible tells us it's time for us to confess, repent. The word confession in the original language is the word homolegeo. It's a word that simply means to say the same. To say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. To acknowledge it for what it is. Repent gives the idea of turning away from, walking the other direction. We even see the same picture in, in Romans 12 that Jace mentioned earlier. Abhor what is evil while you cling to, cleave to what is good. That's the idea. So maybe that's the reason that you're in such a season of distress. Maybe like David, you're feeling a, a deep weight of guilt over sin. You may be here today, maybe you're struggling financially or you're struggling in a relationship or, or whatever the case may be. Maybe you're suffering temptation or the guilt of having given in to temptation. You may be having strain in your, in your relationships. Maybe you're feeling uh, dry spiritually and distant from God. Whatever your distress, whatever its source, the answer from God in the psalm is clear. Seek him. Cry out to him. Pour out your hearts in faith before him. This isn't the only thing. God gives us commands to obey. To choose daily to walk away from whatever it might be. To leave it in the past. The Bible doesn't tell us to just let go and let God in some passive, irresponsible way. The answer to our problems is not a simplistic, well, you just don't have enough faith. The Bible does tell us to seek the Lord while he may be found, to cry out to him, to pour out our hearts before him. We need him to enable our obedience, to bless our efforts to do what we need to do. The deepest needs of our soul are beyond the touch of just mere human help. So whatever our problem, whether it's our fault or not, our answer, our hope must be in the Lord and in his steadfast love. So I'm going to invite you right now to bow your heads with me. This for us is a time of response, a time of reflection. In his work, Christ in the Psalms, a guy named Patrick Reardon said this, The divine wrath is not some sort of irritation. God does not become simply peeved or annoyed. The wrath of God is infinitely more serious than some temper tantrum. It is a deliberate resolve in response to a specific state of the human soul. Only the grace of God can deliver us from the wrath of God. And I want to remind you of the overarching big idea of Psalm 6. 
It said, only the overwhelming grace of God can deliver us from the righteous wrath of God through the marvelous mercy of God because of the unfathomable love of God manifested in the incarnate Son of God. Trust God when you feel that you can't find him. He's with you. And remember that sometimes... He speaks the loudest in what may seem like silence to us. So for some of us this morning, God has made it crystal clear to us by his word and through his Holy Spirit that we need to say the same thing about our sin that God says about our sin. To confess it. To repent of it. To turn and go the other direction. There may be some here today who would say, I'm just in a really, really difficult time in my life. There are big decisions. I've got a medical diagnosis. I'm just not even sure how to deal with this. And turn to the Lord. Trust Him completely. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word today, that even in an ancient text, as David cried out to you in anguish, a deep, deep anguish of the soul, there may be some here today who can, in a very clear way, identify with that. Maybe they can identify with what David has said here about his tossings and his turnings, his moaning, pillows drenched with tears. God, I thank you. Some of life's darkest seasons that we can know and experience and cling to your said covenant faithful love. there's anyone here today that has never trusted you as Savior and Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, the power of your word, they would be drawn to you today. Lord, we love you. We thank you. And we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.